The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our reading today comes from John 11:17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw her, Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Shelley. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Coming to you live streaming from the Sanctuary of Christ Presbyterian Church here in Nashville. Uh, My name is Paul Lim, and I serve here at Christ Pres as a scholar in residence, um, and I've been doing that for the last four years, and for the last 14 years, I've been teaching at Vanderbilt as a professor in the Divinity School. So it's a great, great pleasure to be able to do both here in our great city of Nashville. 
So as Pastor Ross mentioned, we're beginning a new series uh, Sunday after Easter called The Consolations of Christ Amid COVID-19. So consolation is an important theme in literature, religion, and cultural discourses about grief, loss, defeat, and other things. As I thought about the word consolation, several things came to my mind, ranging from hip-hop to rock to classic philosophy. So the first example is uh, Puff Daddy's song, I'll Be Missing You which is a song expressing the grief P. Diddy and many other fans and friends of Notorious B.I.G. felt after Biggie's tragic death at age 25. Every step I take, every move I make, every single day, every time I pray, I'll be missing you. It's kind of hard with you not around, know you in heaven, smiling down, watching us while we pray for you. Every day we pray for you, till the day we meet again, in my heart is where I'll keep you, friend. By singing this song, they were seeking to offer consolation to themselves and to numerous others grieving the loss of this singer. Another th song that came to my mind is Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, recorded after the completely unexpected and senselessly tragic death of his four-year-old son, Connor, in 1991. Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? I must be strong and carry on because I know I don't belong here in heaven. Same way for the grief-stricken father, Eric, Cla Eric Clapton, and numerous other dads and moms, it really offered or sought to offer words of consolation amid that grief. One of the most famous co consolatory literary texts of the medieval and early modern period is a 16th, uh, 6th century text by this person named Boethius, a Roman senator and philosopher who was awaiting his execution in 524. The title of his book is Consolation of Philosophy, and there are a couple of texts that are helpful as we start our time together, indeed our series together. Boethius wrote in book two of Consolation of Philosophy that good fortune deceives, but bad fortune enlightens. Why? It is because good fortune is ever, ever lying when she seems to favor by an apprentice of happiness, Ill fortune, on the other hand, is ever true when by her changes she so shows herself inconstant. Good fortune by a deceitful appearance of good things enchains the minds of those who enjoy them. Bad fortune frees them by knowledge that happiness is so fragile. I don't know about you, but in the last few weeks together as we are going through this culture of lockdown and social distancing amid COVID-19 pandemic, among others, one thing that I've learned is the illusion of control of our calendars. I thought I had a lot of things under control, at least my calendars, but from last few weeks back until October or November, a lot of things in my life have been canceled. It does kind of behoove us to think about who is in control, what does control mean, if anything at all. The first one that we're kicking off today is on death, how God consoles us in Christ as we face death of others and ultimately of self. So how do we console each other when death strikes at the heel or shows up at our front door? Before you get to that part, I think it's important for us to spend the rest of our time in this sermon to think about what Jesus had to say about that, and perhaps more importantly, what his death on the cross has to say about that. A confession or disclosure as I begin this sermon. 
Friends, you know what I've been Googling a few times in the morning when I wake up these days? Embarrassingly, I've been Googling death tolls coronavirus USA Daily. Trying to figure out how many died yesterday in the States and beyond. You might be, I realize, horrified or scandalized as you, as you ask, is that guy for real? Does he believe in Jesus? Doesn't he know that Jesus is raised from the dead and death is such an old news now? Yes and yes, I know all that. And yet, the old news of death has such new and ever-present potency to lure me back in to see how many lives are lost yesterday. Friends, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are awaiting the day when faith shall become sight. But until then, we know in part, prophesy in part, and see through ever darkly the glass. Thus, we should be gentle with those who bump along the way, limp along the way, and are bruised in their souls. It is calling for compassion and consolation as we take each step of faith amid COVID-19. Yeah, to be honest with you, this thing has been very hard. I'm sure for you and for me as well. I miss the actual high fives. I miss those actual fist bumps, hearty laughter with friends inside Six Feet Circle and colleagues and students at Christ Pres, at Vanderbilt, and much, much beyond. I long for fun dinners that go on until late in the evening, lunches at Bombay Palace, Satco, House of India, or Edley's, but that's not happening right now, unless we do it for takeout, of course. That does not mean it'll always be this way, but it does really, really, what's the most theologically accurate word I'm looking for? Oh, that's right. The word is sucks. It really sucks to be in this situation for all of us. We grieve, as Paul says, but not as ones without hope in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And yet we do grieve. So let's talk about this story briefly as you spend some time developing it for our own edification and encouragement for today. Just one Sunday after Easter in the, in the, on the Western context, but on the Eastern context, as millions of our sisters and brothers in the Orthodox traditions celebrate Easter today. So Orthodox Easter is today, the 19th of April. I have three points for us today. These points are not alliterated, nor do they start with the same letter, just to veer off from my typical pattern. But hopefully they are still relatively easy to remember. Three points are as follows. One, you are not alone. Two, I know what I'm doing. Three, do you want to join me? These three points, Jesus saying to us, you're not alone. I know what I'm doing. Do you want to join me? So let's look at the first point, you're not alone. This story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha is a very well-known story. Three of the most ardent supporters of Jesus' ministry were all related with each other, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were siblings. And it seems that they had a fairly close relationship with Jesus since in verse 3 of chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, it tells us that Mary and Martha sent word with the messenger saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. So this is before Lazarus died and the Midnight Express pony and the messenger went bearing the urgent message to Jesus. And what happened from that point forward is anything but ordinary. First of all, Jesus does not come right away with the messenger. Instead, he stays two extra days, as it says in verse 6, and that intentionally, and that it seems quite clear from verses 11 and 14, that Jesus is clearly aware that the delay eventuated in Lazarus' death. Lazarus must have perhaps felt all alone. 
He likely knew that his sisters had fetched the messenger with the urgent message, your beloved friend is dying, so hurry the heck up. Yet he does not come. Lazarus, in his dying moments, must have felt utterly alone in some ways, perhaps even slightly betrayed. At least certainly perplexed at the conspicuous absence of his dearly alleged friend named Jesus. Yet, as, as Jesus will remind Lazarus and his siblings and to all of us, you are not alone. So let's fast forward for a few days. Lazarus is now in the tomb for four days. Jesus, had he had taken his good old time intentionally to get to Bethany, the village of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. The first one to meet Jesus was Martha, and she says, as, she, uh, as will her sister just a few, mo few moments later, that if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You left him alone to die. Yet Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verses 25 and 26. Here is an important statement that John the Gospel writer wants the readers to know and remember about Jesus and his identity. Most Jewish believers knew that Exodus 3.14 is the utterable, unforgettable revelation of Yahweh to Moses in the burning bush. As the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as God reveals himself as I am. And with that in mind, John records the seven sayings of Jesus in which he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And in today's text, I am the resurrection and the life. It is speaking of how Christ reveals himself as the definite, definite revelation of God of Israel, as the one who is, who exists before all things, and yet most surprisingly here in the Gospel of John, this I am is the one who says, I am because we are. I am with you. You are not alone. Let's look at verse 35 to see with crystal clarity. It is a long verse, and uh, so let's take a look, shall we? Verse 35, it reads, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Wasn't he a little bit too late? That's precisely what others thought. They were saying, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It seems by now Jesus was emerging as Jesus Christ, the superstar. In other words, by the moment of chapter 11 in the story that John presents to us, every move Jesus made and every breath he took was scrutinized imbued as they were with great significance. Again, the first point is Jesus is telling the grieving sisters and other family members of Lazarus that you are not alone. He weeps, not out of frustration, not out of fear, but out of solidarity with us. He weeps out of solidarity with us. He knew that Lazarus will die before Jesus got to Bethany. And from the flow of the story, it also seems that Jesus knew exactly what he would do when he got there. And yet, when in, in response to the words, come and see, Lord, where, Jesus, where Lazarus had been lying for the past four days as a dead man, all he can do before saying anything, before doing anything, is to weep. This verse, perhaps one of the shortest verses of the New Testament, tells us that God in Jesus Christ is not unable to sympathize with our frailty. 
but that he identifies, indeed he so radically identifies with our frailty and failures and fears that he became one of us just as we are, yet without sin, and yet he died a criminal's death. Both these are seen in Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4. One of the clearest teachings of New Testament is that you're not alone. The entire incarnation of God in Christ shows that our God is Emmanuel. Our God is with us. So but exactly how is this God with me now in mid-April 2020? I don't know about you, but I've been counting days, counting days of lifting of social distancing like I've waited more for more than any other days. Think with me, friends. Think about what you've been longing for. I was thinking about this as I was writing up this sermon. I was thinking about what intense longings and eager expectations for the future have I had. What was it like? And I could think of a couple of events. One was getting married. A few days before, there was a kind of mounting kind of anticipation and excitement. I'm waiting for that day. I got married in August 1996, and I was waiting for that day, that eager yearning. And similarly right now, I'm yearning for the day of being able to give actual high fives and going and sitting down in restaurants and going to baseball games or football games or whatever and going to swimming pools or whatever it is. Longing for those days, that intense yearning is what I have. So how is this God and Jesus with us today? Well, that'll be the third point of the sermon. So let's move right along to get there to the second point. Jesus tells us, not only that we're not alone, but that he knows what he's doing. He's telling us, I know what I'm doing. So let's see how that can be so. Look with me to verses 25, 40, and 42 of this text. After Martha confesses her belief in the eschatological resurrection of all people at the last day, a kind of a very important part of Jewish uh, belief of the Messiah and of Yahweh, Jesus corrects her belief and fine-tunes it Christologically. He says, yes, that is true what you have said, but I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me now, you will never die. Do you believe this? In other words, he's saying to Martha that even the final judgment of all things and all peoples has something to do with this one who showed up four days late at a brother's funeral. I don't know about you, but it, there's really kind of chock full of irony. This guy shows up four days after her brother died, and he has the audacity to tell her that I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me and believe in this now, you will never die. Do you believe this? And she's having to say, you are the Messiah of God. Of course, she's perplexed by the existential irony of it all. Are you sure you're the resurrection and the life? And people who believe in you will never die? Look at my brother. He's been dead for four days. Are you kidding me? The plot only thickens here, you see. Let's look at verse 39. He goes to the cave where Lazarus had been entombed for four days. And so he says, take away the stone. Then Martha says, and I find it absolutely hilarious when she says, no, it stinks in there. It's been four days, remember? She's not being defiant, but she's being utterly realistic. She's not exercising unbelief as much as being ruthlessly honest about, uh, honest with biological truth of our life. The virus of death has defeated him, left him dead for four days. So why bother roll away the stone? Notice with me in verse 40, how Jesus shows Martha, I know what I'm doing. He says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Seeing the glory of God is a phrase chock full of ironic, ironic twists and truth here. 
What people in Jesus' time expected as glory was likely referring to something like the Shekinah glory of God as God revealed who God was at Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law and so on. But as John will develop this theme throughout the gospel, the glory of God will have something to do with what Jesus does with death. In fact, his own death, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Look at verse 42. Now they took away the stone, and ostensibly it was the order of a dead man lying there for four days, filling up the air for all there. And what does Jesus do? He prays. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. He's calling on the name of Israel's God, his father, indeed invoking the special privilege between father and son. But I said these things for the benefit of the people standing here, Jesus says. He said to them, indeed, he says it to us, I know what I'm doing. Let's think for a moment here. He will say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out to the utter shock and impossible tears turned to laughter situation of Mary, Martha, and all those around. Yet there is a deep irony to this as a foreshadowing role of the tomb of Lazarus and the tomb of Jesus, the resurrection of Lazarus, and Jesus' own resurrection, with a very important caveat here. Listen carefully, please. Whereas Lazarus died relatively honorably, surrounded as he was by his beloved sisters and family and friends, Jesus died in shame and horror, deserted as he was by his close friends, 12 of them, who were supposedly, be supposedly better than his own blood brothers and sisters, and he died as an executed criminal, sanctioned by the Roman Empire's edict. There was nothing honorable about the death of Jesus on a cross. But we often sanitize the death of Jesus. Friends, the death and resurrection of Lazarus does not mean anything apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are intimately connected as are our death and our own resurrections. Jesus says, you think your death is terrifying? It absolutely is. So I wept, but I know what I'm doing. I want you to know, I want you to see what God is or was doing when I myself will face death and will be defeated by it as it takes my breath away. Recently, I had a chance to read and be deeply moved by a number of black spirituals, African-American spirituals, as I had a privilege of teaching from this book, Knowing Christ Crucified, The Witness of African-American Religious Experience, written by Sean Copeland, a theologian from Boston College. She's an African-American theologian, and she reminded me and the prison class I taught this semester at Vanderbilt that Christ's death is often sanitized and whitewashed so that one of the best places to see the powerful, gruesome nature of Christ's death is by listening to and learning from the slave spirituality or African-American spirituals. Here's one for you by Mrs. Brown from Nashville, whose song was made famous by the Jubilee Singers of Fisk University. So the song goes, O Jesus, my Savior, on thee I will depend. When troubles are near me, you will be my friend. If Jesus don't help me, I will surely die. When laden with trouble and laden with grief, to Jesus in secret I will go for relief. If Jesus don't help me, I will surely die. In dark days of bondage to Jesus I prayed to help me and bear it, and he gave me aid. If Jesus don't help me, I will surely die. To Mrs. Brown and innumerable heroes of faith who had been enslaved, the reality of death was real and the excruciating pain of bondage of slavery was ubiquitous. The only remedy was to know that if Jesus don't help me, I will surely die. 
Dr. Copeland writes, the enslaved people faced their suffering and oppression through nourishing their interior lives with prayer. One person declared that in prayer, my mind gets fixed on God, and I feel a deep love, joy, and desire to be with God, end quote. For many of the people to nourish and expand the inscape of their nature desire for God was an act of defiance against the system and structure of dehumanization of their identity by slavery. Yet they knew that Jesus knew what he was doing. That leads me to my third and final point. Do you want to join me, Jesus says. Look with me in verse 42 again. I knew that you'll always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here so that they may believe you sent me. Okay, what is he saying? What is the relationship with Jesus' identity, his mission, his death and resurrection, and the subsequent kingdom of God that Jesus is allegedly building? Jesus, from the very first day of ministry, was asking people, do you want to join me? As he's asking us to join him, but what are we signing up for? That's an important question to ask. As was becoming more obvious among Jesus' own contemporaries, as it is for us as well, following Jesus and joining him in his ministry was a dangerous one. Discipleship costs, and it was going to be a costly discipleship as he understood the nature and depth of God's grace in Jesus, which was not ever to be seen and experienced as cheap, which was something both Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Sean Copeland called for. In other words, Jesus' ministry was dangerous, and yet we're not alone. The discipleship cost our lives, yet Jesus says, I know what I'm doing. So then the question becomes, do you want to join me? If you want to know the power of the resurrection, the Bible says, you must experience the power of shame-inducing death, death on a cross. As Jesus asks us, do you want to join me? He is asking us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and then follow me. As Martin Hengel, a well-known New Testament scholar, said in his book, Crucifixion in the Ancient World and the Folly of the Message of the Cross, the cross stood for being a forsaken loser of society, emblematic of criminality and human indignity. In fact, Roman execution by crucifixion was a display of Rome's military power and conquest, primarily designed to subjugate revolutionaries, insurrectionists, murderers, robbers, and almost always for those in the lower socioeconomic political strata, slaves and subjugated peoples, such as the Jews of Jesus' days, including Jesus himself. As Sean Copeland writes, crucifixion was intended to intimidate by example and sub subdue by spectacle. It was high-state theatrical violence. This crucified Jesus is the one who is now resurrected and he's calling us, do you want to join me? Before you truly live, you must die to yourself. Do you want to join me? He's asking you and me today so that we believe that God the Father, the God of Israel, has sent Jesus not merely to raise Lazarus from the dead, but to die a death far more shameful and violent than that of his beloved friend. In other words, precisely in the terrifying executed death of Jesus, God was not only present, but in a shocking and scandalous way, God himself was crucified. As we were singing earlier from that Charles Wesley hymn, that you, my God, should die. That's why for many in the Roman Empire, first century and beyond, the death of the Messiah was complete nonsense and height of folly and stupidity. In Augustine's City of God, he writes about a third-century Roman philosopher named Porphyry, 
who basically believed that anyone who worshipped the God of Christianity was completely insane and idiotic, as records a petition of a Roman citizen who was troubled by his wife's conversion to Christianity and asks a Roman God to intervene. So this is what Augustine writes that Porphyry wrote. Let her persist in her vain delusions, this Christian woman, singing in lamentation for a God who died in delusions, who was condemned by right-thinking Roman judges, and killed in a hideous fashion by the worst of death, a death bound with iron on a cross. Then we have to ask, why would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries, as was the question raised by Larry Hurtado in his book? The answer lies in the fact that somehow these early Christ followers, these disciples of Jesus, who said yes when Jesus asked, do you want to join me, somehow they felt deeply and were convinced by this fact that death was not, death was not the final answer. So we're living in a new normal of lockdowns and social distancing, not only here in the United States, but also throughout the world. I was emailing with a friend of mine about life in Leicester, England, and it says we're on a lockdown in a very serious manner. I was emailing with a friend in Bangkok, Thailand, and they've been on lockdown since January, and these are the sort of global new normal realities. These are truly Dickensian days. It is the worst of times, and yet it can be the best of times. Death is fear-inducing for sure. Death is not natural. Death sucks since we have to go it alone. Death is, not, death is a goodbye one day too soon. And yet Jesus says, you're not alone. I know what I'm doing. And it is this Jesus who is inviting us to you want to join me, both in life today and in death someday to come. Death is a virus with a 100% success rate. All of us, including Lazarus, will die or has died. Death is not natural, but has become second nature to us, thus naturalized citizen of the Republic of God. And yet death will not be the final word. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Friends, let me finish by sharing with you one of my favorite poems of all time that has something to say about our present reality. It is by a 17th century English poet and a preacher named John Donne, D-O-N-N-E. It is called Hymn to God the Father. Here it is. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though I still do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. So I want to hold right there and explain a little bit before we get to the final stanza. So in the first two stanzas, the poet says, you know what? I have the sin of fear because I have a problem called sin because it is both original and actual sins. And he says, when you have done, you have not done, because I have more and more sins that are ever besetting me. And this is how he comes to the grand finale. He says, I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. When I read this poem for the first time as a graduate student, it just blew my socks off. 
Because I realized that, you know, as a graduate student studying theology, I knew theology. I was kind of getting better at knowing this figure and who said this and when they said this and why it mattered. But what I really didn't realize was the interiority of my own soul. I had this fear, fear of death, fear of, in some ways, life itself, fear of the future. And here the poet says, you know, I have this sin of fear, but at my death, your sun will shine, both S-U-N and S-O-N, as he shines now and furthermore. And having done that, God, you have done it, and I fear no more. Friends, dearly beloved, may these words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Console us and comfort us as we forge ahead. While anchoring down in Jesus... God's action, God's most decisive action in Jesus' death and resurrection will give us the resilience and real hope as we're ushered from here through death into eternal life. Let's pray and contemplate the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection together. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies that are new every day. Although, to be perfectly frank, dear Lord, shrouded amid COVID-19, it is sometimes very, very hard to see. What we seem to hear are rumors and realities of death and spread of disease and viruses, and yet we are called to look through, not in, but through these circumstances to see you. We remember so many from our own congregation and on our own relations and families who are working as medical staff, technicians, nurses, and doctors, and so many who are at the front line of making food in restaurants and delivering them and taking care of our needs, both in the police force and the firefighters and numerous others who are giving their life to save those who are at risk. And amid all of these things, we do not lose hope. Amid all of these things, we do not grieve as those without hope. And amid all of these things, we remember Jesus. We remember that we're not alone. We remember that he knows what he's doing. We remember you, Lord, that you are indeed the one who is calling us. Do you want to join me? So as we respond to you in song, in our doxology, and in benediction, may you do your work of warming our hearts strangely, as only you can do that. And having done that, we fear no more, Lord, for you have done it. In your name we pray with gratitude. Amen.